0: Well, it's that time for us to turn our attention to the Word of God this morning, and we are in the book of Galatians, following after uh, some uh, some heavy uh, exploration of um, verses uh, eleven and twelve. We heard Paul's claim in verses eleven and twelve that his gospel was not man-made; uh, it wasn't a man-made invention, nor was it handed down to him as part of some tradition but he received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He had to state this for the record because his opponents, the Judaizers, were telling the Galatians that he had received his gospel from the Jerusalem apostles and that it included circumcision and keeping the law and that he, Paul, preached that gospel only to Jewish audiences. Remember, he was accused of uh, customizing his messages to the likes and tastes of his audience. So Paul writes that he received his calling and his gospel from Jesus Christ directly. He goes into his past to prove this, presenting his first uh, presenting first his his pre-conversion years, then his conversion experience, and then first two visits to Jerusalem, the first of which happened three years after his conversion, and the second, 14 years after that. Now, this morning, we will examine his pre-conversion years, his conversion, and just the first three years of his converted life. That's really all we have time for. And if you have noticed, uh, what we have before us is really Paul's testimony, his testimony. The importance of a Christian testimony should not be underestimated. Luke records Paul's testimony three times in the book of Acts, and they all square with this fourth occurrence in Galatians chapter 1, which has a, a few differences to it, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But let's see how Paul crafts his testimony to the Galatians for his particular purposes. First of all, we see that Paul explains that he was uh, what he was like before his conversion that's in verses uh, 13 and 14. He explains what he was like before his conversion. Verse 1, uh, verse 13, "For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism." Paul starts obviously with his unconverted days here as a Pharisee, which he says the Galatians had heard once before from him and he refers here to the former way of life in Judaism. Now, let's stop right there, and let's understand, first of all, that Judaism is, is a religion. It is a works-oriented religion, as all religions are. And secondly, it's not Christianity. Well, but we use the same Old Testament, yes, and many other religions also use the Bible as part of their belief system, but that doesn't make them legitimate. At the beginning of time, God established a pure faith in the garden with Adam and Eve, which he defined in terms of a covenant based on the future work of Messiah. And I refer to Galatians, I'm sorry, um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And from that time onward, a godly line stretched from Adam to Christ with each generation catechizing the next one with the gospel message. Uh, We know this godly line to be the remnant of godly people. And that remnant, that godly line, passed through the nation of Israel as well. Those who belonged to it in the nation embraced this true faith that Jude would later define as the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. It It was what Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... And even Moses believed. It's what David and the prophets believed. And the Gospel of Luke opens with a reference to Simeon, Zecharias, and his wife Elizabeth, who obviously believed the same Gospel. They had the true faith. They were part of the godly line. Now parallel to this godly line was an ungodly line since Adam and all the way to Christ, began with Cain. And it included pagan nations of the ancient world, of course, but it it also included false Israelites who departed from the true faith, who, who apostatized from orthodoxy. The book of Judges gives us a sterling example of this. Over time, false Israelites distorted the pure faith, and that distortion became known as Judaism. Now, don't ever mistake Judaism and Christianity as cousins. One has nothing to do with the other. One is a false religion, the other is a true religion. Judaism is no more a relative of Christianity than Islam is. And if you want to know our heritage, well, then open to the book of Hebrews, read chapter 11, and see the, the champions of 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 the Old Testament who live by faith in the true faith. They belong to us, not to Judaism. Now Paul was a product of Judaism, a product of this works religion, and it was his way of life. He says his former way of life, which really means he was a staunch Jew. And in fact, he was a fanatic about his religion. He explains in verse 13, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and tried to destroy it. And that declaration confirms that really there is no relation, by the way, between Judaism and Christianity. Paul himself saw no relation. He saw Christianity as an aberrant form of Judaism, Judaism gone bad, if you will, since at this time it was mostly comprised of Jewish converts with a flagship church in Jerusalem. And Paul believed that the sizable group of his own countrymen claiming to be Christians were really a threat to his precious religion, to his precious Judaism, which is why he attacked Christianity so vehemently and he wanted to destroy it. You know, Paul didn't go around and try and snuff out any other belief systems, just this one. And he persecuted it beyond measure, he says, which highlights just how tough Paul was On Christians, here's Luke's account in Acts 8. Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. Listen to Acts 9, first two verses. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. And when the Lord spoke to Ananias to receive the newly converted Paul, you remember, he, uh, we read in, in, of his response in verses um, 13 and 14 of that chapter, Lord I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And and here he has the authority from the chief priest to arrest all those who call on your name. Paul himself even shed some light on his his terror that he reigned on the churches in Acts 22, verse 4. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in prisons. And we find in Acts 26, verses 9 to 11, that his intentions were to completely destroy Christianity. So I thought to myself that I had to act in strong opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being put to death. And as I punished them, often in their synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was extremely enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Can there be any doubt that Paul was a formidable enemy of the truth? None whatsoever. He was. And I might add that when Paul was eventually introduced to the truth on the Damascus Road, he knew instantly that salvation by grace through faith was totally incompatible and undercut completely his works-based religion of Judaism. No question. So what was it that drove Paul to this degree of hostility toward the faith? What made him such an ardent champion of Judaism that he would want to expunge Christianity? the answer i believe is in verse 14 galatians chapter 1 paul says i was advancing in in judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions paul's advancement in judaism most likely here refers to his achievements not really his knowledge although he had a a lot of knowledge about his traditions He was proactive about cleansing the land of any threats to Judaism, which is why he asked the head Pharisee for a recommendation to go to the synagogues in Damascus in search of more Christians to persecute. The ancestral traditions that he refers to here and for which he was so zealous were really the teachings of the Pharisees that dated at least as far back as the 2nd century B.C., The tradition was really commentary of these fathers of Judaism on the Torah, as well as their various man-made laws. And these were all passed down orally from generation to generation until they were codified in works like the Halakha, the Talmud, and the Mishnah. Which, by the way, altogether made up volumes of Pharisaic literature on how to live as a good Jew in light of the law. Volumes. Now, it was these very traditions, by the way, you would be interested to know, or interpretations of God's law, that Jesus denounced, which is why the religious leadership wanted him dead. And one of the clearest examples of Jesus' denunciation of rabbinic tradition is his Sermon on the Mount, where we read in Matthew 5, he specifically attacks their understanding of the Ten Commandments. The rabbis reduced the commandments to the level of behavior that just makes sense, so they could keep it. Well, I didn't kill anybody, and I didn't commit adultery, and so on. But Jesus corrects this false notion, and he explains that the Ten Commandments really operates on the level of the heart, on the level of thought, which indicts everyone, even the revered religious leaders. Well, they couldn't tolerate that. Uh, if if he was right then no one could keep the law and that's true which is why the law is a a, a great way to lead people to Jesus Christ and faith now whenever Jesus referred to the rabbinic teaching that he was denouncing in his sermon he used a formula and that was this formula you have heard that it was said and whenever in the new testament there is a reference to scripture It will either say, it is written, or maybe Moses said, or David said, or the prophets say, but never you have heard that it was said. This phrase was Jesus' special phrase for rabbinic oral tradition of the religious leaders, and which Paul was so zealous for. And after exposing it as erroneous, Jesus would then go on to give the right interpretation by saying, but I say to you. Jesus actually taught that keeping the rabbinic tradition would be to disobey God's law. Here are his words. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? A modern parallel, I think, to the rabbi's exaltation of the rabbinic tradition above the word of God is clearly the Roman Catholic Church's elevation of their church dogma above the Bible. Those of you who came out of Roman Catholicism know exactly what I'm talking about. Roman dogma is a collection of commentary on the Bible for life, given by past popes and passed down from generation to the present. It was codified in Vatican I. And uh, interestingly enough, edited in Vatican II, which should tell you something about this venerated work. The Bible never needs editing. Okay, so Paul the Pharisee was an expert in these traditions. He was fanatical about them. And we might say that he was an activist for Judaism. Paul's best description of himself in his own words, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, he says, If anyone thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. His own words. So there you have Paul before his conversion. He was a a tyrant to the church, a self-righteous person. Anyone familiar with it, with his testimony of his previous years as an unbeliever, would surely surely conclude that there was absolutely no possible way that Paul would ever or could ever have received instruction from anyone on the gospel during this time. He would never have tolerated any attempt. At somebody trying to educate him about the gospel. What he heard from the lips of those that he persecuted, well, it never penetrated his heart, only made him more zealous to lock them up and put them to death. Salvation by grace through faith was foreign to the Apostle Paul in his pre-conversion days. Now, the next section that we come across in verses 15 and 16 is how Paul explains his conversion. We understand what he was like before he met Jesus, and now he tells us how he met Jesus. He says there, But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The word but, in verse 15, introduces an abrupt change in Paul's thought. He moves from his pre-converted life to his time of conversion, and he highlights here some important facts about his calling and election. His emphasis on God saving him also leaves no room for any human contribution. I want you to really note that. Even he himself had nothing to do with his own conversion. You'll notice in verse 15 that he says that God set me apart and called me. Now, these words are really reminiscent of the words of God to the prophet Jeremiah. And if you want to hold your place here and turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, you may. I want to read verses 4 and 5 for you. The prophet there says this, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, many New Testament scholars believe uh, that Paul had Jeremiah in mind when he said these words, and I would agree. No question about it. It's just too identical. In Jeremiah 1, there is is clearly an element that Paul does not mention directly uh, in, in Galatians, but he certainly implies it when he compares his calling to that of Jeremiah, and that element is conversion. Jeremiah states that the Lord knew him intimately before the prophet was ever ever conceived in the womb. And this squares with, with the rest of Scripture, of course, particularly with Paul, with what Paul says later in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 4 and 6, he says this about election. Just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to the adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glory, of His grace, with which He favored us in the beloved. And in verse 11, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, In him we also have obtained an inheritance, inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according with his plan of his will. So Jeremiah 1 and Ephesians 1 both teach that God predestined his people to eternal life before the foundation of the world. And as Ephesians 1 clarifies, by commanding his love on them, what do I mean by that? Well, when God tells Jeremiah that he knew him before he even formed him in the womb, he means that he loved him with a saving love. The word knew here cannot mean an intellectual knowledge since God knows all things. That just wouldn't make sense. It's best to understand know here with the idea of loved And we know that the Old Testament uses the word to know in certain instances to speak of an intimate love relationship, such as the one Adam had with Eve, and she conceived. So God set his love, his saving love, on his elect before he created the world. This is what he says in Jeremiah. Now, especially because God did this to his elect before they were even born, proves that God's salvation is based on nothing in them or that they do, right? But rather on God's own good pleasure. Paul would make this very point in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 to 13, with the twins. You remember Jacob and Esau. He said, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. There's the love before the twins were even born. Beloved, you were in the mind of God in eternity past, where God loved you with a saving love. Isn't that remarkable? In The 1689 Confession, our very own confession, it speaks to the saving love in terms of what's called an effectual call that is totally the act of God alone. Let me just read that one part for you. It says, quote, "...this effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in those called. Neither does the call arise from any power or action on their part." They are totally passive in it. They are dead in their sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. But this, by this, they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Christ from the dead wonderful statement. Now, in addition to this predestinating love or loving act of election that God does, God also set apart Jeremiah and Paul, calling them to a holy vocation. Look at verse 15. Paul says, he set me apart and called me through his grace. This is Galatians 1.15. The word set apart means here to appoint for some particular purpose. We find it in Acts 13 too. The Holy Spirit said, set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work which I have called them. Again, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says of himself, I am a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The setting apart together with calling in verse 15 refers then to, the, to Christian vocation and ministry. On the Damascus Road, Jesus did two things to Paul. He saved him and commissioned him to be an apostle. And we're safe in assuming this on the basis of what God would say Later to Ananias in Acts 19:15. to remember, he says, "He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel." I have no doubt that Jesus told Paul this first, before he told Ananias. And Luke hints at it in chapter nine, verse six, Acts 9, verse six, where he records Jesus' words to Paul. Jesus said, go into the city, and you will be told what to do. So there's something that Paul was assigned to do. God also called Isaiah this way. We find the same terminology in Isaiah 49.1. The Lord called me from the womb. God called John the Baptist this way. In Luke uh, Luke chapter 1, 13 to 17, the angel's words to Zecharias you will bear a son and you shall call his name john and he will be filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn turn many of the children of israel to the lord their god and he will go before him in the spirit and power of elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the lord a people prepared paul speaks of god's saving work in his life and his calling to be an apostle, in the rest of verse 15 and the first part of verse 16, he says it this way, God was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Do you see the conversion and the calling? Both are there. as clearly happened on the road to Damascus. And I want to take some time just to pause here and and maybe point out that what Paul saw in a vision on the Damascus Road was the image of God's Son, who is the image of God the Father. And this experience for Paul, listen very carefully, was an objective one. It was an objective experience. And by that I mean it wasn't a figment of his imagination. The account gives no indication at all that he was hallucinating as a result of fatigue or sunstroke. Now, in fact, Luke adds this important detail. You ready? The men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Were they hallucinating as well? No. What makes this experience of Paul even more objective is the fact that he was not looking for it. He said that God revealed his son to him. F.F. Bruce explains in his commentary that, Quote, the appearance of the risen Christ to Paul was as real as his, er, uh, as his earlier in-person appearance, appearances were to Peter, James, and the others. And to prove this, uh, Bruce quotes, or points rather, to, the, to this repeated phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 to 8, he appeared to. Now Paul is speaking, is writing to the Corinthians in chapter 15, uh, verses 5 to 8 rather. He says that Jesus appeared to Cephas, and we might add in person. And he appeared then to the twelve in person. He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time in person. He appeared to James in person. He appeared to all the apostles in person. And last of all, He appeared to me. And that, of course, would have been in a revelation. So Paul uses the same phrase, he appeared to, for himself, as he does for the apostles. Jesus' appearance to Paul was just as real as his appearance was to them. And so the post-resurrection appearance of Christ to Paul was an objective experience, something Paul saw with his eyes And he could confirm inwardly in his heart, meaning that he was convinced that what he was seeing and hearing was the Lord himself. This is why he says that God revealed his Son in me and not to me. Of course, the Lord revealed Jesus to Paul, but the phrase in me also, also points to this experience that was confirmed in Paul's own mind, in his inner spirit. I believe, in fact, that Paul had the Damascus Road experience in mind when he speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, of seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He saw the Lord, and he knew it. He knew who he was talking to, and he was convinced in his mind, the Lord revealed Christ to me, or in me. Now, Paul no doubt told the Galatians of this experience as part of his testimony when he first evangelized them, and it's an an element that he highlights here in order to prove his point, which, aside from being commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles, is this, he learned the true gospel through no human agency. Even what he heard from Ananias was nothing but confirmation of what Jesus told him earlier on the road. So we have Paul's earlier days his pre-conversion life verses 13 and 14. We have Paul's actual conversion experience verses 15 and 16 or 14 and 15 rather. And now Paul explains how drastic his life changed after his conversion verses 16 and 17. He says I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia, and I returned once more to Damascus. Now this account is somewhat different than what Luke gives in Acts chapter 9. And I need to bring this up because at some point you're going to find it, and you're going to say, why are they different? In verses 20 to 22, the apostle Paul Says this, uh, Luke rather says this in Acts 9, 20 to 22. And immediately Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, 'Is, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Interesting. According to this account by Luke, Paul preached immediately in the synagogue in Damascus after he was baptized. Immediately. And with a boldness that also characterized the Jerusalem apostles after they received the Holy Spirit, if you remember, during Pentecost. But Paul mentions, or Luke rather, mentions nothing about Paul going to Arabia. Paul tells the Galatians that he went immediately to Arabia and says nothing about his evangelistic endeavors in Damascus. The two passages then seem to be at odds until you understand what both are doing they are highlighting certain aspects of the same historical event for their own purposes. This is very typical of biblical writers in the Bible. The writers of the Old Testament history, for example, did the same thing. The Old Testament is not a historical account of Israel, but a theological work for the future people of God. So the writers were selective in what they chose out of the history of Israel in order to put together their theological treaties or point. We find the same thing with the four Gospels. The writer of the four Gospels highlight different aspects of the same three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus for their own purposes. So Paul highlights the fact that he retreated to Arabia for three years to prove that he received his gospel and more about the faith, directly from Jesus and from nobody else. That was the point of making a reference to Arabia. Even the Judaizers would have to admit that Paul would have found no one in Arabia knowledgeable enough to tell him anything about the gospel. Luke, on the other hand, wanted to show Paul's conversion experience to be genuine, so he mentions that Paul immediately started proclaiming Jesus. Now, be that as it may, we still need to reconcile the two accounts. How how can both be true? And the simplest answer is that Paul did both. Huh? How's that? Well, the location of Damascus, ancient Damascus, is not quite clear. And depending on the political state of the city of Damascus... It was at times considered part of Arabia, and at other times, it just shared a border with it. Either way, Paul didn't go far from the actual city of Damascus when he went into the desert, but just outside the city limits to contemplate his new life in Christ, perhaps learn more from Jesus himself. So he certainly evangelized everyone in his path. In the region of Damascus, maybe even going back to Damascus for supplies, who knows? But everything was sort of in the same general region, so there's no discrepancy here whatsoever. So what we have before us then is Paul's testimony. And I'd say it's a valuable tool for the apostle in witnessing to others, and that's be, that becomes apparent, I think, as you read the book of Acts. He uses it when witnessing to the Jews in Acts 22. He uses it when he witnesses to Agrippa in Acts 26. And what is noteworthy is that in each case, beloved, he emphasizes different aspects of his testimony that he believes will best resonate in capturing the attention of his audience. Luke, as we have seen, emphasizes certain other aspects to prove his point. Now when it comes to the Galatians, those who are saved by, uh, but, but acting like they have departed the true gospel, Paul simply treats them as their actions deserve and he gives them his testimony again. And this time emphasizing certain aspects of it to support his argument that he received his gospel and his authority from no other person but Jesus Christ himself. So that is Galatians 1, 13 to 17, Paul's testimony. And I would say that there are at least three applications that we can take away from this testimony, one of which we have already made throughout our study, and that is simply that we have precedent for the composition of our testimony. We have precedent. In other words, Paul's testimony instructs us on how to give our testimony. We tell people what we were like before faith in Christ. And then we tell them how we came to faith in Christ. And finally, we tell them how our life has changed since we came to faith in Christ. Very simple, but very powerful. You essentially are telling someone how Jesus saved you from your sin and condemnation and the stark difference between what you used to be before knowing Christ and what you are now in Christ. So, beloved, you should always be prepared to give your testimony in this way. Always. In fact, you should have a short version, a medium version, And a full-length version with details so that you could give it at any time, any place, as the context dictates. You want to be be prepared to give an answer for the reason for your faith. And this is how we do it. Do you have a testimony? We all have one. Are you prepared to give it? Very important. Number two, I think another application comes from a, a common denominator in all the versions of Paul's testimony, including Luke's in Acts 9. And it's this, that our salvation is the exclusive work of God. The exclusive work of God. Paul highlights it by contrasting his former way of life with his new life in Christ, arguing that such a 180-degree turn was not possible by any human means. Now this is very powerful, and it's something that I'm sure Paul emphasized as he talked with those unbelievers he was evangelizing. It's something we should talk about as well. No human means. Far from showing any interest in the gospel, Paul hated it, and he hated those who proclaimed it. There was nothing on this earth that could have taken such a formidable enemy of the cross and turned him into a champion of it, much less in a matter of minutes. You want to reason with your audience, this is how you do it. Only God can accomplish this. Only God. He left to persecute and he arrived a champion that's a great encouragement to us. Since people are so hardened to the gospel, we need to just be faithful with the message and trust God to do the work. But this is so very encouraging. So very encouraging indeed. It is a it is a work of God. This is a divine work that God has chosen to do through the proclamation of the gospel. We need to be faithful and we need to deliver it accurately and then sit back and watch what God will do. Number three, last application here. It comes also from a common denominator in all the testimonies of Paul's conversion, and that is that all genuinely born-again believers bear fruit immediately upon conversion. Immediately upon conversion. Now, we learn from Gentiles, that, or Galatians rather, that upon Paul's conversion, he stopped his persecuting agenda immediately and he entered gospel ministry. And we get that from Galatians. We learn from Luke, more specifically, that Paul immediately started preaching the gospel the next day in the synagogues of Damascus. Brother, don't let anyone ever tell you, even in the church, that you can be a Christian and produce no fruit. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There isn't. And if you find one, Well, then you need to tell them to trust Christ and be saved. And I'm really firm on that. According to what we know from the New Testament, there is no fruitless Christian. God took us out of a profane lot, reserved us for special purposes, right? That's what he did with Jeremiah. That's what he did with Paul and Isaiah. And that's what he did with you. When God set, set us apart for his special use, he sanctified us. Now, there is another Greek word that also means to set apart. It's different from the one Paul uses in Galatians. This one actually has become a technical word in the New Testament for salvation. At times, it is translated holy. At other times, it's translated saint. And still at other times, sanctified. It refers to a particular status into which God brings a person at the moment of salvation, and it is a holy status. God saves us out of the mass of depraved humanity and sets us apart for his special purposes. And that sanctification is a process that begins at conversion and continues throughout our entire Christian life as we become conformed more and more to the image of Christ Jesus 2 Corinthians 3:18 to be saved from condemnation means at the same time to be delivered into a new life that God reserved for you God called Paul to be an apostle and a church planner and God ordained for Paul ordained this for Paul in eternity past God called me to be a pastor and plan, and and that plan was created in eternity past. God saved you, and he reserved you for special use in his kingdom as well. Practically speaking, practically speaking, there is a sense in which all Christians are called to the same thing, and that is to glorify God in all that we do. That is the number one goal of all Christians. We glorify God by the way we live and also by making him known to the nations. But there is also a sense in which each of us have our own individual calling from God, which usually revolves around our spiritual gifts that is confirmed by godly elders of a local church. With that said, some become evangelists, some become missionaries, some become pastor elders, some become deacons, some evangelists, some Bible teachers in the church, and so on. The expression Paul uses here, from my mother's womb, by the way, it doesn't conflict with the fact that God did call or or did all of this in Paul's life in eternity past. He saved Paul in eternity and he he called Paul in eternity. The the passage in Jeremiah proves that. This expression from the womb is simply to emphasize God's choice in the matter. It is not a chronological phrase, a time phrase. But it just it's, 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 it's indicative of God's work alone, his choice alone. Paul didn't know God, God's choice. Paul had nothing to do with it. And the same is true of each of us. God, in eternity past, set his love on us, saved us, called us to a particular station in life with a determined set of spiritual gifts that he outfitted us with in order to fulfill that calling. And you had no more to do with your spiritual birth and all that comes with it than you did with your natural birth. What about trusting Christ and repenting of my sin, though? Isn't that something that I do? Ah, well, now you're referring to the natural means that God has ordained to bring about his election in real time and space. If we want to be technical about this... At the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates our dead spirits, replacing our fallen nature with a new nature that finds God's saving grace irresistible. It's as a result of the regenerating work of the Spirit that the new believer repents and believes the gospel upon hearing it afresh with new ears, And then God justifies. And that is all in a split second. But one's trust and repentance is generated by God's initial regenerating work and it comes with a calling. It comes with a calling. John MacArthur put it this way in his commentary in Galatians, and we could let these be the last words we hear on this subject. Quote, God does not call any person to salvation whom he does not also call to service. Every believer is created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Father, we're thankful for this time together that we could examine this brief passage and that we could be convinced of your great work in the life of Paul, also in our lives as well. We pray that we would take our cue from the Apostle and that we would come to realize our calling in our election, that we were were saved by your love in eternity past, that you called us in eternity past, and that you set us apart for your service here on this earth until you come to take us to be with you. We pray then that we would take that very seriously and we would pursue our calling and that we would not shrink back in these last days but that you would find us busy and when you return you would find us busy or if if uh, if that uh, comes after our lifetime that that we would die in service for you for lord we know that that your calling and your sanctification is what defines us so we pray O god that you would be pleased with what you see in your servants this day and on until you come again for your glory and for the benefit of your church we pray in christ's name amen amen